Welcome to The Happy Wanderer. Every week, five of us from different backgrounds get together to discuss some of the most pressing, interesting topics in our adult world, or as kids would, in unexpected, spontaneous, open-ended ways. We hope that by cultivating this lost art of wandering within ourselves, we'll discover opportunities to connect with, understand, and support kids in more meaningful ways in this time of immense change. To join us every week and get a supplementary email with additional resources for the episode, sign up for our newsletter at happywandererpodcast.com. Follow and chat with us on Twitter at the underscore wonderment. Start the exploring with your kids with creative activities on these topics at thewonderment.com. And follow us to get mini episodes throughout the week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Dogcatcher, and other top podcasting sites. And now, let's start the wandering. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Happy Wanderer. This is episode 20, I believe. Nope. 21. Oh, man. You're off. That's kind of better than That's 20. Good, yeah, no, it's 21. That's a good start. So, <laughs> episode 21, um, I'm Amy Schaefer. I'm a writer, um, creative director for The Wonderment. And um, this week, have been thinking weirdly, and I don't know why, about what an interesting predicament it is to be nine years old. So, that might that might come into play. Do you, you don't, you're not, are you just going to leave it there? You don't know a nine-year-old? No, I've been a nine-year-old. So I'm like reflecting back on it. And I think it might be the ultimate, like hidden, hidden spot of human experience. No one thinks about nine-year-olds. They're not a teenager. They're not a kid. They're not a little kid. They are very, they're like in the the blind spot of human experience. Anyway, I've been thinking about that a bit this week. Sorry, nine-year-olds. We just say Sorry, nine- a No, part of I our think audience. it's incredibly powerful. Well, yeah, I agree. Um, well, I'm Matt. I'm a former teacher and school director. And because of last week's episode, which everyone should go check out, I started reading from the mixed up files of Miss Basilie Frank Weiler to my kids this week. And it features a nine-year-old, by the way. Um, Jamie, the younger brother, is nine, I believe. And he's great. And he does operate in a blind spot. I mean, he's cheating his way. He's he's rich because he cheats his way through card games and sits in the back of the bus and nobody notices him and all that kind of stuff. And they run away for successfully for quite some time. So I think the power of nine. There's something to it. Yeah. Well, I'm Brian. I used to work in government policy and now I work in uh, non- the nonprofit space. And I have a second grade teacher for a wife and a little boy that turns two today. Ah, so, the twos. Yeah, today's the birthday. Um, but yeah, I guess I don't have too many further reflections on nine-year-olds, but we're chomping <laughs> at the bit, so might as well get into it. You're only seven years away. <laughs> and yeah. we're missing, we're missing prepare. Joy this week, um, who is off on some other wandering adventures. So we, this week, are what you got. Um, so... I actually, it is, I think it comes back to the nine-year-old thing, which is fascinating because these threads all really do all converge in some interesting places. But um, just to give you a little bit of background, if this is the first time you've listened, um, we go throughout the week and we wander a bit. We look for things that inspire us, um, whether it's in the news, whether it's in commentary, whether articles, videos, we just are open to uh, what inspiration hits us during the week. We bring it back together as a group. 
and look at um, what we feel like are the themes that emerge to us and how those themes can. And then we discuss how those themes uh, connect to our lives, the way we interact with kids, the way we learn. And then in some ways, how we become a little bit more like kids again, ourselves and our perspectives, being open to the connections that can arise spontaneously by, um, by, yeah, being open to inspiration and then interacting with others about it. So um, this week, I thought the articles that we brought together were really interesting in the sense of that this idea of something that's hidden <laughs> and uh, may hidden power, I think, is an interest or hidden ability is an interesting concept. And I think that that was something I was I was thinking about um, with the theme of forward thinking. What does that even mean? I think that that's, you know, these themes sometimes feel like they actually all collapse into each other like a rushing, Russian nesting doll. Um, I feel like a lot of the themes feel like we're, we end up talking about similar things, but from different vantage points. But this week I thought that um, the concept of forward thinking and, and trying to understand um, what really is forward thinking and how do we actually um, implement things that we believe are forward thinking in, in our lives and what does that lead to, you know, progress, I think, as we've um, talked about the, what your definition of progress is, can lead to, and the various definitions of progress can lead to some thorny uh, discrepancies as we all are trying to participate in the world that we live in. Um, and if you don't share values with, with others as to what that is dictating that progress, it can really affect the way you think about it. So I, one of the articles that for me really embodied this and really made me think about that is this article in Wired um, about the fact that it's the, the title is it's time to think about living in parking garages. And it's, you know, it's a tip, it's a, it's a Wired article. It's awesome about just um, some different movements afoot that uh, in Seattle, it's uh, there's this tower um, that they're building of uh, a new you know, apartment building, condos, different things like that. And the architects that are designing it want it to be able to survive for 50 to 100 years and kind of came to the point that if they did that, that they felt like the the need and role of cars and parking in our lives was going to change really dramatically over the, that course of time. And that, that would probably be one of the structural elements of the building that would need to be considered in a very changing and versatile way. Um, to be able to actually ensure that that goal that they had of it surviving 5,200 years. And I thought it was really interesting because just first and foremost, the idea of thinking about making spaces uh, versatile enough to accommodate changing social attitudes about the spaces. I think we've talked about, you know, there have been various conversations and articles and things in, in past weeks that have uh, kind of centered around that. I mean, I think that the the article that yielded the Mrs. Basley Frankwire reference of like the, the abandoned apartments, the Atlas Obscura article of the New York library system, which is an interesting one. If you want to go back, I think that was in the last, yeah, that was in the last episode. If you want to check that out, but this episode idea of 20, like, 20, by the way, <laughs> the, the real episode 20. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that this was interesting and some of the challenges they ran into in trying to plan like that. And the fact that like it is, it's actually, it would be more expensive for them to build the parking garage to be able to accommodate that kind of transformation in the future. And so they met resistance um, to being willing to invest, you know, the the additional resources now to allow for that future evolution. Um, and they were just talking about kind of the, some of the challenges that you face when you try to build things in a forward thinking way. 
and try to make it, you know, obviously in the long run, if you're thinking a hundred years down the road, if that building's been able to survive and meet a, a multitude of needs over generations, that's going to be clearly the more effective use of, of resources in the long term. But what keeps us in the short term from thinking that way? And I just thought it was an interesting, you know, there's various avenues to think of the idea of forward thinking in the context of that situation. Um, but I thought it was one of the more tangible examples of some of the conundrums that keep us from thinking that way. Well, and I think that the use of architecture, I mean, certainly parking garages are um, a good example of this just because of the the flux that we see with transportation and our use of cars and um, what we kind of see on the horizon coming, uh, coming down. But um, it, it also makes me think of how um, those thoughts have changed over time. Uh, like you think about the Marina City Towers uh, that are in Chicago, the corn cobs, uh, as you will. Those were designed to be able to meet every single need of their uh, residents. So everything from shopping to, you know, actually having, you know, uh, access to the river, like all these different things. But like when you go into them, and I'm maybe this is just me, but it feels like, you know, kind of like that um, – tomorrow's house type of feeling, you know, from Disney where it's like in, in the future, you know, this is going to be how our houses are going to be. And, and they were definitely forward thinking in the fact that they were trying to pull whatever the best information and the best predictive elements that they could be able to find. But now looking back, you know, and didn't accurately predict, you know, in 2016, it's like, well, things just went completely different than what they were thinking. That's it's so cool and nostalgic in a way, but like it, it just shows that how limited information uh, that we have can be able to be kind of put together into what we think might be, but ultimately, you know, without having all the pieces, I don't know. It's, it's just interesting to see like what people's iterations of, you know, forward thinking are, especially on something as permanent and, you know, completely in your face is architecture, hmm. you know, and, and because that that's not like an article that can be archived and, you know, or something like that. That's that's something that's going to be lived in and seen and um, experienced on a daily basis for decades, if not centuries. Well, that's what you think. But like living in the city like we live in, we, you know, just a block from our office here, we saw a building that was built in our lifetime torn down last year to make way for a newer building. Like this is so like, what are people even, what do they think they're planning for now? But there are also 120 year old buildings flanking it that are still there. Well, and that we're sitting in yeah, and the one has had in. different, multiple different uses right. over the years. So like, not to mention addresses, like yeah. it was literally <laughs> moved across the street. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> to preserve a little bit of background, it. the place that we, that we work in, we record this podcast from is actually a building called odd fellows hall that was because it was on the historic register was uh, when people wanted to build a, a brand new building where it stood, it had to be moved to somewhere else. So it actually got, you know, cantilevered over the street and put in a new spot. But <laughs> so, it is interesting to see yeah. like what, what our value system is of like, okay, what actually stood the test of time and still has value. So like talk about nine-year-olds being in the blank spot, like buildings built in the late eighties and early nineties here in our city are just disposable. Like, well, they and, don't count for anything, just tear them down. But it is interesting because, like, um, it, architecture and just building in general and, and um, development is kind of just one of my 
interest. That's not like I'm like an expert in it or anything like that, but I just follow it. And it is interesting to see just like how construction methods have changed over time, especially as we're wanting to be able to have lower costs. And um, certainly there's special projects that pop up every uh, now and again, where it's just like, okay, you know, this, this is something that we want to build for a time, but like a new apartment building, they're just like worrying about like the least cost as possible. And it's, it's, it, it is interesting because you, you don't see, you know, brick, for example, masonry, like if, if they do use it, it's a facade. It's not actually, you know, used mm-hmm. as a structural element. It's used just so it looks like what things used to be. And just like the different, you know, construction methods that people are using, they're not meant to, you know, be standing in, you know, 50 years, Although let alone, like they're, they're we, just like planning. It's kind of like planned um, obsolescence, obsoles- yeah. obsolescence is actually taking over in our buildings the, the, just as much as our computers. Street, though, we saw this. So it's I, I love we've had this discussion many times, but uh, to make way for a new a brand new office tower and theater across the street from our office here, they tore down a William Pereira. Yeah. Um, a classic modernist brutalist structure that was built in the sixties and it took them forever to tear that thing down. It was solid. Like they mm-hmm. were hitting it with heavy things for probably six months straight. I'm not kidding. Like you could hear it everywhere. And so like that had no planned obsolescence on his part, but we took it down. anyway. Well, PS like it, it is interesting to kind of like, I mean, just the visual of when that building was coming down, it was almost like, I don't know, like a nine round, you know, heavyweight fight yeah. where it's just like the guy's on his knees, but yeah. he's not going down. Like it was just this skeleton of these ginormous eye beams, like that flying are, buttress like, eye beams that, that would were not go down. And they would, they were never intended to move from where they were because they were so big and so heavy. But because of the demands of you know this new functional office yeah. skyscraper, but it kind of like this whole thing is kind of emblematic when you put in this theme, Amy, of forward thinking. I looked at my articles and I realized most of my articles actually are forward thinking in a way that's looking to the past, like something like Victorian thought or something old fashioned, an old fashioned notion, and we're carrying it forward. And so I think that we're sitting in this weird place where we're wondering if like this office, this tower that William Pereira built with traditional techniques was very, very solidly built, meant to last for hundreds of years. And, but we're kind of working that way, but we're also standing at the precipice of a singularity clearly where like machine learning and our lives as consumers and workers are clearly about to change very drastically. And what are we supposed to do? And are already changing. Yeah. So he Mm -hmm. built this giant building. It was beautiful when it was built. It got changed and it was really ugly for its last 10 or 15 years, but it was still super solid and it fell down like it was taken down. And so I just, uh, you know, I just, we I think we're sitting in this moment well, thinking like, what are we to do? What's the rational response? And it's just such a fascinating commentary of like what our, our expectations are now. Like it used to be that like it, so we had you know, a similar type of line of thought when um, my wife and I, we went to Europe and you see these, insane churches and cathedrals and these monuments that took over, you know, hundreds of years to just build, let alone, you know, how long they've been in existence. And, and so I I made the comment to her, it's just like, can you imagine going into a planning commission and saying, I'm going to build this building and it is going to be amazing, 
but it will take the next hundred years to do it. Will you give me the approval? Like, can what kind of all of your village's resources and all of your what kind of permit? What kind of permit do I need? You know, and it's just so absurd. But it's just it is interesting to me that our culture is so accustomed to dramatic change in such short time periods that we've actually been able to create that in literally everything and to to the point like of our homes like our homes are just like it's like okay well that land is probably going to be developed for a new use and, and and we're okay with that and you know and it's just like kind of expected well and i think that's the thing that's interesting and maybe what really i didn't even fully understand what kind of piqued my interest in this wired article until we started talking about it fully that I think that the, even just the exercise of stating an ambition or a goal or a desire for something to exist in a hundred years, for something to be designed to exist in a hundred years, while also allowing for, so like the structure, the actual physical materials are, there's a desire for those things to be long lasting and yet also be accommodating of the fact that the, the recognition of the fact that we are changing so fast and the needs of what those materials will need to be for us and do for us is needing to be considered in the design process. I think that's an, that's a little bit of a new moment to some degree where we're not just, we're, we're, we're not just having to think about if we don't want to go the route of complete planned obsolescence and complete throwaway, which I think is the most depressing for me personally. I just, you, that that that's the least of all options in my mind, because I think that part of what the the solidity and the, you know, something that lasts for a long time materials wise can be a bit of a, a burden of sorts to consider of the it takes up space and it's very defined for a long period of time. And yet to to use all the effort and the bandwidth and the materials to create something that is intended to be wasted, to intended to be torn down is the shortest is the most myopic thinking in, in my but, mind. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm coming out. I'm, I, <laughs> I mostly agree with you, but like, <laughs> it is interesting to kind of like take the devil's advocate of that and say, well, is that really not forward thinking? Well, because I guess I should actually, say as guided by the value system of just not of being doing the cheapest thing in the moment. Right. That's, if it's guided by that value system, there's, there's a totally different vantage point, which could be considered very forward thinking in a way of we're going to design things that are, you know, that are meant to be completely evolutionary where it can take, it can change shapes. It can change forms. It can be torn down. It can be replaced. It can be rearranged, but that kind of design thinking isn't any cheaper. Like that's, it's not being guided. It's being guided by a different purpose than just how can we build this the cheapest now? And then when it's no longer fitting our needs, just get rid of it. Right. Like, I think that that's where the value system and the motivations really do. That's a part of defining what is truly forward thinking in my mind is what's actually guiding that thinking. And what can adapt. Yeah. What can adapt to the weird changing times that we have right now? And the singularity. Mm-hmm. And it, so an article, there's been a bunch of stuff about Tesla this week as usual, but I think Elon Musk unveiled a new home solar energy concept that was that doesn't look like space age panels on your roof. It's just actual durable roof tiles. So, I mean, in a sense, like it's the oldest mm-hmm. slate tiles like for a roof. It's the oldest thing. And I, I saw in this article in Fast Company, they linked to 
his demonstration when he unveiled them. They're dropping these giant heavy weights on all these different kinds of roof materials, and his is the strongest. And also it collects solar energy. But the interesting thing about the Fast Company article is it's uh, headlined, Tesla is betting on scarcity, not luxury. And because we're standing at this moment where all these things are about to flip-flop, like, how do you even define scarcity versus luxury? Because that struck me as really wrong. Hmm. I was like, oh, no, if your house collects energy for you, and it's super durable. That's not the the article was saying you're going to have to do this because you're going to have to be off the grid because apocalypse, you know. And I was like, great. Like, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds luxurious. Yeah, I mean that that sounds perfect. Like to have a small footprint to use a small amount of energy with energy efficient things, collecting it on your own. That sounds like freedom to me. So, uh, you know, it's kind of trying to take these design elements and make them work in two opposite ways at the same time. So how can you have a parking structure? I mean, have you walked in a parking structure? I know that I, because if you go back four or five weeks, you can hear about being a flaneur and how that takes me into parking structures a lot. But they're not for human habitation. Like, they have very low roofs. All Everything is sloped. It's all raw concrete, and usually people have peed in the corner and... There's oil everywhere, things like that. Like to think about making that multi-use so that humans can live in it. Um, these seem like super divergent priorities that now we're finding ways to bring together, which I think is cool. Well, well, oh, yeah. I was just going to say it's, it's an inter- it is interesting to see uh, kind of like the biological responses of how we kind of come to this. Uh, there was a really interesting article in uh, one of our go-tos, Aeon, uh, that was talking about the real problem. And it looks like scientists and philosophers may have made consciousness far more mysterious than it needs to be. And um, it's a, a fantastic, it, like she she wrote it very well. Uh, she, the, um, oh, what's her name? I, I apologize. Got to pull it up here. Um, it is um, Annal Seth. And she's a, a neuro, um She's a professor of neuroscience at the University of Sussex, and she was able to really um, explain a very complicated and— um, It's actually a man. Oh. Just throwing that out there. Okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure we're referring— That's interesting, though, because I— In the correct proper pronoun. <laughs> anyway. No, we've evolved because if we're going to default now to a, a female assumption about writers— Brian, we have evolved. Way to go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, this is the future. I am very apparently forward thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I have no idea why I thought it was a woman. But anyway, anyway, I digress. Um, so the article was written very well. Um, and it explained why, like what our brain actually understands as being conscious. And um, the one thing that was that really stood out to me among others, but this relevant to this uh, conversation is how our brain is actually a predictive machine that is actually, because they, they explained it like, just imagine your brain, it's inside this, you know, bony structure that is entirely dependent on these sensors such as hearing, you know, sight and, you know, nerves and everything like that to give it information to be able to then make assumptions based off of that and then predict what's going to come as a result. And that's what, uh, what they were kind of, uh, talking about with consciousness and, um, how a lot of the assumptions uh, that were, that have been made, um, 
not the least among them is the difference between mind and brain. And, you know, like just like how uh, our mind is uh, has different functions, but that are informed by the uh, receptors that are functioning in our brain. Uh, but the whole point of it that was really interesting is just how we all have this limited information, especially when we're talking about for, being forward thinking and kind of thinking about how, you know, different things are going to serve us in different ways. We're all completely dependent on the information that's immediately available to us. And so like when we're talking about the, um, you know, the different buildings that were built back in the 60s that were, you know, kind of like the futuristic uh, type projects and kind of looking back at that at, with some novelty. It's, it's the exact same thing with our, our brains and how we are actually thinking about, you know, what we're doing and how it's just like we're working on this limited information and, um, you know, just how I, I thought that was really interesting, just that sometimes we are assigning different um realities to be, you know, as, as fact, even though it's not necessarily the case, you know, it's just based off of the information that we have, but it still feels as factually as factual as ever until some other new information comes out. That's just like, Oh, okay. Now I can see that that's completely different. Just to um, give a quick plug for all of our listeners benefits that Eon article also references this um, neurology researcher named Julio Tononi that wrote my favorite Fantastic. book of last year, which is called Phi, P-H-I. And he, Phi is his measure for how consciousness, consciousness arises basically out of human interactions. And it's this really cool Alice in Wonderland kind of book where Galileo, it's fictional dialogues as Galileo kind of moves forward through time and thinking and meets people like Alan Turing and Francis Crick. And many times they're... There are many discussions where someone is deaf or someone is blind or someone is missing some kind of information and they're discussing how am I actually formulating my world. And it's got lots of paintings and illustrations. It's a really, really amazing book. Um, and it illustrates a lot of the ideas from that article through the, a more playful kind of dialogue. Well, and I think that leads exactly to where, and this is a little bit of a personal tangent off of that, which is, and it ties in actually to another Aon article. <laughs> Fancy that. But... Um, but this idea that I think that that's where the intuitive aspects that we usually relate to creativity, that we're either able to use creative works to evoke within ourselves or that the creator themselves of, of said work is able to tap into and, and bring into some kind of physical form is so important. And we've talked about this in past weeks too, is it's like because that particular way of processing information isn't as, as readily measured or as easily um, defined as some of these other more kind of quantitatively driven metrics, that that's something that has lost, well, I would argue that it's lost emphasis in certain avenues of being supported in human development in human experiences, but it's actually gained in power in terms of its impact for those who are able to actually do that still um, in, and how it, the, the emotional and the the way that that helps us integrate all of the aspects of what we're, what our consciousness needs to actually be able to function in the world. And I think uh, it might, it made me think of this other Aeon article of why historians would make bad policy advisors. And there's a lot in this article. It's really, really interesting, but I think that what m appealed about it to me and then kind of a, a little bit of a discovery in this conversation of what it might be, uh, 
the polarity might be causing it to miss is the fact that, I mean, it goes through and it basically talks about the approach of historians and how historians are looking at an ever evolving um, human document documentation of human activity over, over long periods of time and seeing what patterns emerge from observing that um, and, and what we can learn from that. And so there's inherently, there's a level of ambiguity, a level of complexity and a level of just long-term observation and thinking that has to go into like approaching any kind of history of any kind, because you you have to you have to allow for it to emerge and and unfold and then and then you're able to understand some things about it and then it talks about um policy advisors and and the way that we create policy in the current moment and there's this just this this emphasis on complete reductive just like clarity and immediacy is really is kind of the name of the game And I, and then it kind of put them into context with each other of like the things that we need from both of those worlds and that, you know, there has to be space for both of those things, but why those things have a hard time going together. That this idea that nuance and ambiguity are regarded as impediments to decision-making. And yet if you don't have that nuance, if you don't have that ambiguity, your decision-making is going to be inherently, inherently short sighted. And so I think that, and I think with all of that, I'm like, but where's the, I, I had this curiosity of just like where, you know, we've got historians and we've got policy advisors. And I think that there's this whole other thing, this whole other area that's like the aspect of like human expression of like the artists and the, the, the people that actually allow us to understand. And I think that that, the, you know, Phi is a, a wonderful kind of symbol of that, of taking something that takes, you know, elements of history, elements of, you know, philosophical thought, elements of scientific thought, all these different things and blends them together in an artistic expression that allows you to be playful and be open-minded and yet weave something together in an interesting way in your own mind and emotionally connect to it and emotionally care about it. That also feels like a very now kind of expression of things like, oh, we can synthesize all these things together. But then you can realize it's just like Da Vinci and like, totally. It's actually a very old fashioned way of working. It's it's only relatively recently that we stepped away from those things. Well, and it's just fascinating just because. And why? Well, especially with like history and um, let alone human behavior and, you know, human history, there's so many assumptions that have to be made in order to, to synthesize it into something productive. But the, as we kind of have been able to kind of see, especially with the big data movement and being able to see, you know, this huge spectrum of measurable, um, you know, quantitative data, we, we see how complex things really are, but yet we have this need to boil it down into something that we can be able to make a decision on. And how, I mean, I, I just think about like, um, you know, the, the example that you had of, you know, somebody that's like blind, you know, like, okay, so they they will have a very different decision-making process because they're working with a different set of variables, you know, that might even be more correct than, you know, somebody that has this seeing something that might not be what they think that they're seeing, you know? And, and so it's just like, or or any other kind of, um, you know, any sensor that's like giving a false positive, um, you know, we're, we're making an assumption that, okay, I'm, 
I'm assuming that that is actually true, but really, you know, we, so much is depending on the accuracy of whatever assumption that we're, be, that we're making. And so then it's just kind of, it's, it's interesting to see how that, that introduces a lot of further misunderstandings that compound on each other. Well, I think that's maybe where, and this is, yeah, I don't want to get too far out on the, in the, well, I guess there's no, not too far out in the weeds, but like, I think that's where the idea, the difference between trying, between pursuing something and a desire and an effort to prove something and pursuing something and a desire and effort to understand it more and explore it are two. And I, I feel like that is obviously there's space for, there's space for both of those experiences, but I think we've become so, there's something about like the, 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 the way that we pursue, even using the data that we get, like big data, that data is data. And like how you approach data is the thing that's actually makes it interesting or, or, or limiting actually. And I think that that's where I feel like sometimes the way that we, and maybe it's in the same, you know, contrast of the historian policy advisor kind of like question of just being like, I feel like the thing that made Da Vinci, I mean, the polymathic way of thinking, just the whole thing of just, of rec- there's an inherent understanding in approaching the, in, in being that way that recognizes the overlap and the need that all different types of thinking has with, with each other. And that the, the state of considering those things together is what yields actual forward thinking, not, not any thing that's inherent to any one of them alone, if that makes sense. And I think that that's the state that we now don't cultivate as actively as at, like we don't cultivate it. And so because we don't cultivate it, we've, we've missed seeing that it's actually a state of considering and, and capacity as opposed to, you know, proving and predicting. And right. But it's it's actually interesting because when you, I think overall, I I really agree with you, but when it comes down to, you know, needing to make an, you know, actual decision, right. Like that's something that you can't really take, you know, a lot of times you can't take that time to ponder, okay, the, you know, the complexity of everything. Like uh, there was an article that you found actually the, the 1967 solar storm oh, that geez. took the U S to one. the brink of war. And it's just like, and, and maybe you can explain it, but the interesting uh, thing that was a, in that, into this conversation was there was a solar storm that actually had very similar effects to, you know, some of the things that were going on with like radar jamming between the United States and the Soviet union and how, because it looked similar, like that almost, you know, put into place this, you know, sequence of events that would could have led to nuclear war. And, you know, because the, the sensor, you know, the, the decision makers were having were it was faulty and it's just like, they didn't take into account a solar storm that would look very similar to. But I think that proves my point again, which is the fact that that happened was just a sheer chance that someone who was considering it from another angle was brought into contact with the people that were considering it so exclusively from the other angle. So yes. basically what happened was the, um, the, the physicists, the space physicists that um, were essentially gathering this data over periods of time um, and had learned these things about geomagnetic storms just happened to be able to be in the same conversation to be able to articulate that this is what the, this looks familiar and this looks similar to this. And that's, and that's the thing. It was, you know, that pattern that the, that the air force observed was considered like an act of war. Like that was actually, you know, 
an attack that looked like that from a radar jamming perspective was considered an act of war. Mm -hmm. And so the response that would be made from that level of just like focus would, would be in that context. And yet because they had this additional context brought into it, they were able to actually make a better clearly decision at the, I mean, that could change so many things like all of those. And I guess that's, I don't know. And what about all the times where that physicist wasn't there? Well, I guess that's why I'm saying, I think that there's an element of if the ability to, and the capacity to think in a broader contextual way, whether it's, it's, it's the, it's the ability of each individual to think and have the capacity to think contextually with others. And, and that actually brings about the organizational elements that do bring those kind of conversations together. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's what we're, I mean, kind of what we're talking is like, we go out and we find all this random every week, what feels like random stuff that just speaks to each one of us, you know, and then we bring it back together. And then there's something that emerges that is a very relevant conversation to each of us that we can each contribute to uniquely because of the, you know, the experience we've had in the past week of gathering these things. It's not the same data that we're like, we're all drawing from, although some of the same data sources, Aeon, <laughs> but like, it's not the same data we're bringing it, but because we've committed to getting around this table and because we see the value in, in both exploring and, you know, individually and together, I think that that there's something to that, that that's a developed capacity and it changes the way you consider decisions that you make. Well, and I think that like, at least for me personally, it's really broadened my ability. And this is something, Matt, that you've been able to really um, drive home, especially the last couple episodes of, you know, the how uncomfortable it is in this day and age to not make a decision uh, right away and being able to take the information that you're receiving and use it as evidence, but still be able to sit in that space of like, okay, I'm not making a decision one way or another. I don't have to make a flash judgment. I think that that's something that's really unique. And I I hope that there's kind of a, I mean, we're, we're seeing several of these articles that are supporting this. I hope there's some somewhat of a renaissance of being able to, to go back to, taking time and not having to make a stand, you know, immediately one way or another based off of like, you know, some anecdotal, you know, tribal type decision making. Well, and that, I don't want, did you have something you wanted to jump in with? Cause well, I'll just really quickly, because in our country right now, I will just take the flip side of that. Cause whatever you say, I'll just take the flip side, but the flip <laughs> side is we need I did poly- say hopes. I yeah. didn't think it was the reality. <laughs> well, there is a role for someone and this is to your Ian article about historians and decision makers. We do need people who will take temporary information and make a decision and then really passionately argue for it. We, they, we need to not really believe their passionate arguments, but we need them to do that. And those are politicians and we need someone to carry us forward in that way. And it's like, you need a fireman to run into a house that's on fire. You need an accountant to add up your books. And but you if, need a politician to take some temporary information, make a passionate argument the best that they can against someone else making the opposite argument, and then present those and then carry us forward to the next step. But I think one imbalance that we're seeing on that front is we've misidentified that argument. And some people have said, oh, what that politician is saying is the emblem of everything that we are. It's our whole identity as a people and all these things. And no, it's just like they're taking a snapshot and they're making one limited decision. And I think, you know, we're learning in our country right now in a big way, like what happens if you kind of lose 
those boundaries. Well, and there was actually a really interesting article that actually addressed that, that exact same thing that was in Salon about how fact-checking doesn't matter and the human biases control whether or not we're going to be, believe politicians. And that, I mean, we, we've seen um, ample evidence of this happening specifically in this presidential election that it's almost over by the time you hear this. <laughs> hopefully there's a little bit of tranquility hopefully, that's, that's occurred afterwards. I'm not counting any, on it. But hopefully there's a there's a, a world still that... No, but, I'm just kidding. I won't get there. <laughs> but like it, it, it's interesting just because like um, those kind tribal-like forces that, you know, have kind of supplanted um, critical thought. And, you know, it's just like if... It's the person holding my banner is the one that's saying this. It doesn't like I'm going to defend that because that's it's that important to me for me to do that. Like that's kind of taken the, you know, the, the point where like these fact checks don't even matter anymore. You know, like it doesn't matter that what they were saying was inaccurate. It's just that he's my man that's saying it. Which is crazy because or our discussion about future thinking, forward thinking here is kind of delved more into broad thinking like. Let's think widely about an issue. Let's delve into the past of the issue. And like, and I think that is the res- the responsibility of the citizenry when thinking about who is going to be the politician who's going to make the next incremental choice. But none of us should, I mean, my point stands, I think, though, none of us should believe what the politician is saying. <laughs> and that's fine. But like, believe but what they're saying now. That's not true, though. As a practical like, thing. Well, in, in, the, in the article, it kind of talked about um, how uh, Daniel Kahneman, he's a Nobel uh, Prize winning psychologist, how he established that there's actually two systems of decision making in our brain. System one is what he termed as fast thinking. It's something that you have an immediate um, you know, stimulus, and then there's a, a you know a very instinctual response to it. And uh, system two, however, is you know what he termed as slow thinking that was actually able to kind of disseminate. Okay, what you know, what was my system one thinking, and how do does that reflect? And it's a lot more of you know kind of inflective thinking. But what he's uh, what they're finding is that um, because we ha- we've changed the way that our um, information is given to us and also the quantity of which it's happening and the speed at which it's coming at us, that system one is completely overwhelming the sense of system two thinking, which then, you know, when you're thinking about neural pathways, when you're using a certain set, you know, over and over, your, your brain is it's just like a muscle, like in a lot of ways that like, you know, it's it's going to overcompensate and become imbalanced. So it's almost like when we wander, just really quickly, instead of like fighting every wave of information, we're trying to kind of surf on top of them. Like, let's get a whole bunch of ideas and information here, kind of see where that propels us, and not make system one consider every tiny thing. Well, and that's what I—that's what I really. I guess that's what I was kind of. It, it's this thing of being able to actually integrate the, I mean, it's the, the in and the out breath, the, the yin and the yang, like all these things of being able to actually, you know, incorporate those things with each other and understand the patterns of how you engage with those are the things that I think have really suffered in a lot of our, um, kind of bite-sized categorical thinking that has been really heightened by the fact that we can measure those bite-sized categories so much more minutely and, and I mean, we won't get into the whole conversation, you know, clearly we've had lots of conversations about how, you know, testing environments and things like that breed that kind of 
focus, that way of focusing and that way of thinking, but it's a real thing. It's like a real, I guess. And it's so hard. It's, it's so hard to articulate the value of it because it's not something that is, it's not something that's translatable through that, through that medium that we've become so kind of dependent upon in, in, in understanding and kind of that, which is so strange because it's, it's, so I think it's really interesting. The, the, the did you call it phase one, and phase two thinking or type uh, one and system, type two thinking it's, system? It's system one. And system okay. So two. system one and system two, it's fascinating to me that the reliance on system one thinking is what's getting us kind of into trouble right now of just like, we're ignoring actual, we're ignoring facts that have, that have emerged. Well, because, and it's inherently bias based. Like, well, but hold, hold on one second. Cause I think it's, it's interesting that I think that it's because we're starved for syst- we're starved. They're out of balance. And so because we have access to all of this data, but we don't have ways of understanding it, incorporating it that are tied to human, like human story and human experience that we then we're starved for that. And that's an actual human need. And so then we actually rely on a much more, a much more, like almost, um, we, we, we start to utilize a depleted version of that, which is, tri- which is very much like just biased thinking essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think that, so this does tie in with a, this is a jump, but, um, this article in the cut called Amazon's new strategy for getting kids to read is so depressing. It is so depressing. So depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think it ties in with this because, and it ties in with this making a decision based on an art, a piece of data that is for a goal that is ostensibly a good goal, but you're making your, your, it's completely missing the point of what it is that kids actually need. So it's this Amazon program that, um, and I'm, you know, whatever, it's just an interesting thing to be able to, you know, context to be able to think about this in, but it's this um, Amazon service that basically writes and delivers short stories to kids in the form of text. So um, <laughs> it has in the story a little screen grab of the, I'm of sorry. the landing page. I don't page. want to live in this world no, I anymore. Know, I know. <laughs> of a landing page that says the headline Bye, is stories, stories come to life one message at a time. Oh, yeah. And big life and <laughs> lots of life there. And I thought it was fascinating because the the person writing this article kind of had a similar um, vantage point as I have, which is, you know, there's a, clearly an issue of needing to encourage literacy and encourage reading as a part of life and, and have have kids see what the and some kids that's that's an easier case. That's something that comes much more easily to some than others. But it's something that's important for everyone, the ability to do that. And so the 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 response to that, you know, is fascinating that they they made the knee jerk assumption that well the right solution is to is to basically it's the whole Henry Ford thing if you ask people what they wanted they would have said faster horses but this idea of like make taking data and being like well what do kids seem to be interested in texting and then thinking that the same thing like that 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 those things are part of the same experience and trying to make them so is fascinating to me because one of the things about reading and we've talked about this in past uh episodes is that there have been multiple studies that show that it is the act of that that reading is actually the most powerful thing you can do to develop an empathy, an empathy based mindset where not empathy in the sense, but being able to actually put yourself in another person's perspective or consider the world from another perspective or a more complex perspective, or just being able to, to, to almost transport yourself into different worldviews, different, you know, 
different reality sets. And I think that that is, you know, for me as a kid, that was part of what made reading so powerful was its trans the ability that it had to transport you and the ability that it had to give you access to all these different things. And I just think it's interesting that like we're saying basically, okay, so how do we make this, how do we reduce this to what you are showing that you're willing, based on the data that we have, what you're willing to do. And it misses to my, in my mind, it misses the, it misses the point. It misses the, it misses exactly why you would want kids to read in the first place. And also what they would find powerful about it, which is the starvation, I think, for, for authentic experiences with story that help us to grow instead of keep us, instead of limit us more. I think this is, it's a good example of, I'm, I, I'm having a hard time articulating this in my brain. We're having a real discussion and I'm having real ideas. So I apologize to the podcast <laughs> world because sometimes they sometimes don't just come messy. out right. But there's something about reading, looking at a broad array of information, but keeping a soft gaze. So you're not fixating on one mm. particular thing with system one to tell you this is the most important thing. And, you know, these companies, anybody's using big data or trying to analyze users to build user base is always focusing intentionally on one little narrow thing and usually missing the big point. But it seems like if we can take that broader view and then also kind of keep a historical or even evolutionary perspective, like what do we just know about what the human organism knows and loves and needs and not forget that for one flipping second, but which is if you want to forget all that, then yeah, text someone 144 characters of a story. Like this is the least compelling way to actually experience what is good about reading. And I just have another example of that kind of, of what I would say is the good kind of broad thinking um, in Slate this week. Uh, it was Halloween this week and they had an interesting article, just a little snippet about how if you want to know what good urban planning and design actually looks like, just look at where people want to go trick or treating. And mm. I think any of us who grew up trick-or-treating can imagine exactly, and if you live in a city now, you know exactly where you want to go. And if you think about why you want to go there, that tells you where, where, where people can live, where people are associating well, where there's strong community. Um, and it's not just, you know, I live in a neighborhood that's very mixed and there are parts of the neighborhood that are lower middle class income that are the best trick-or-treating areas. It's not purely a financial issue, but they are also kind of older neighborhoods and um, they have a certain certain kinds of porches, certain kinds of yards, certain sizes of street, um, just little things like that. And I think you could maybe replicate that study with an army of sociologists canvassing multiple cities for years and years and years and come up with data that supported this. What a waste of time. Like you can tell from some of these small human activities, what are the things that we still care about that we're always going to care about that we need. And so in a way, like the big data, I think is always going to go down this path of like someone's controlling it for a purpose with system one, trying to get an outcome, trying to get a certain system kind of, two. yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's dehumanizing. <laughs> well, and I think it, it's, it, it really does kind of come back to it of where we, we've kind of gone in this interesting canvassing of sorts ourselves of the fact that the, it, cause in that, in that exact article, urban planning and trick or treating, like it really is. It's, it's, it's when we start reflecting on our own human experience in the, in the 
efforts that we, and, and if we have more avenues to interpret that or experience that, that human, that humanity through the better, because I think, and I think that that's where the polymath element of things was so powerful is that it was, you know, and it was different from individual to individual of what, what those different areas were that they brought to bear on whatever they were focusing on. But if you think about, I mean, like Da Vinci, obviously being the classic example, you know, he went from artistic to scientific to just like sheer batty future. I don't even know. There's not even a category for it of where he chose to apply that. And he also, based on where, what he was applying it to brought these different things that, you know, this, all of this, this broad spectrum of things that he was just exposed, exposed himself to, and it was interested in, in day-to-day life to bear on that. So it's a back and forth. It's this, you know, it simultaneously, it simultaneously affects the way, what you choose to focus, focus on, and it affects how you choose to focus on it and what you choose to bring to bear in that focus. And I think that that's the, you know, I don't know. I think that the things that we, that stand the test of time as, as being thought of as forward thinking to me, it seems like come from from that place. Yeah, I think it's almost like we need we need this very cerebral, analytical data gathering element, but we need to be also Epicureans and just recognize what is most alive to me in this experience. Is is reading a story by text the best way to make me feel alive in the story? You know, like you can pretty quickly recognize what doesn't yield any result that way. So, you know, maybe we're moving back into an era where we have super intelligent Elon Musk entrepreneurs out there who will maybe reconnect with what is most alive in the human experience. And that would be cool. On the other hand, apparently in inverse this week, they reported that Google's AI has learned how to encrypt its own communications, meaning that <laughs> not only have None of this been, matters. not only have machines developed some intelligence, they now know how to hide, hide it. it. And so we are the last relics of the beautiful human intelligence and warmth that I've just described. Oh, well. Well, with that, <laughs> we will send you into a week of forward thinking of your own and talk to you again next week. Thanks for being a part of The Wandering this week. See where it takes us next week by signing up for our weekly episode newsletter at happywandererpodcast.com. Let us know where The Wandering takes you by chatting with us on Twitter at the underscore wonderment. Start the exploring with your kids with creative activities on these topics at thewonderment.com. And follow us to get mini episodes throughout the week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Dogcatcher, and other top podcasting sites. See you out there.